In the late 1960s, David Fenton was a photojournalist for Libertarian News Services while also publishing in the New York Times, Life, Newsweek, and others. In 1978, David was the director of public relations at Rolling Stone magazine. He was the co-producer of the No Nukes concerts with Jackson Brown, Bruce Springsteen, Bonnie Raitt, James Taylor, and many others in New York City in 1979. Then in 1982, David founded Fenton Communications to promote issue-orientated public relation campaigns focusing on the environment, public health, and human rights. Since founding the company, David pioneered the use of professional PR and advertising techniques by nonprofit public interest groups in the United States and around the world. David also co-founded, because he had some spare time, three independent not-profit organizations, including the Death Penalty Information Center, which helps journalists cover the uh, cover evidence of innocence and racial bias in the death penalty system. David has just released his latest publication, The Activist Media's Handbook, Lessons from 50 Years as a Progressive Agitator, which discusses how to organize social media campaigns. And he joins us today. Good morning, David. Hello, how are you? How was my, uh, my synopsis? Uh, it was fine. One little thing, it was not libertarian news service in the 60s, it was liberation news service. Uh, it's prob that was probably more my dyslexia than anything else. I probably did say <laughs> and I probably wrote it down the wrong way. So, hey, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. I've, I've been... um. How do you word this? Turned on to you? That's the right way to word it, I think. Um, through Nomiki Const, actually. Nomiki sort of uh, connected, well, connect us, but connected me to you. And I, I've been uh, addicted to going deep into a whole bunch of your stuff over the last month or so. It's been amazing. And I'm so excited to, uh, to be getting a chance to talk to you. Great. I've never been to New Zealand, but I have to put that on the agenda. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it seems like... so. We, uh, this is my podcast, and this is sort of a conversational podcast. I also do another product, which is like a daily news show. Mm. Um, similar to, I guess, what Nomiki used to do when she was doing her news show, um, which is a news-type commentary show. And we um, overtly and unashamedly uh, come from the left in that news show, mm -hmm. but we always talk about walking and chewing gum at the same time. So, you know, we, we're not ideologues that can't see positives from the right or, you know, things on the left that need to be corrected. And when I looked at and read some of your stuff, I'm just like, from the perspective of sitting on the left, everyone on the left should be reading your stuff and knowing your stuff. Because one of the big things I heard you talking about the other day was uh, you talked about how the left comes into the world from the Tower of Babel and the right comes into the world from a united echo chamber. And for people who don't know, going back to my uh, Catholic roots, uh, tower of Babel was a story where a whole bunch of people who spoke one language were building a tower. Uh, the big God guy got upset about that. And so he basically made them all speak different languages so they couldn't understand each other. And then they spread to the world. So when you describe the left as using the tower of Babel, I'm like, you know, lots of messages, no one understanding each other, talking over each other, not a cohesive group. And for a very long time, I've been saying the right, quote unquote right, seems to do politics better. And the reason for that is they do get behind one message. Even if they hate someone who talks about grabbing pussies, once he's the president, they get in lockstep and he is their leader no matter what. Whereas the left, if they don't like your message, even if you're in the same team, they kick you out of the boat. That's what I've experienced. Yeah, well, that's the historical pattern of the left, unfortunately, in, in, in many, not all cases. You know, this uh, 
this we don't value communications with the public very much on the left. Um, we used to, when I first got involved in progressive action in the late 1960s, mass persuasion and mass communications was the name of the game. And we paid a lot of attention to that. And we also had music and mass culture on our side in uh, the progressive landscape in the late 60s and early 70s. And and now the the right pays much more attention to this than we do. You know, why uh, is has uh, been explained to me by the great linguist, uh, Dr. George Lakoff, who recently retired from UC Berkeley. And here's how he puts it. He says that people in the progressive world generally study the humanities, the law, and the sciences. And they are taught an intrinsic worldview that is, he calls the enlightenment fallacy, that a great idea will magically persuade on its own because of its inherent brilliance. And people on the right go to business school, by and large, where they study marketing and cognitive science, and they have to learn how to sell products and services in order to get ahead in their careers. We don't. Yeah. And so they learn that simple messages that everyone can understand easily, repeated all the time, is the way the brain changes and public opinion changes. So that's how they function. You know, here in the U.S., the right has a a meeting basically every morning to say, you know, what's our message today? And they pretty much all unify and say the same things. And as you said, we have the Tower of Babel. We don't value unifying communications. We really don't value communications in general. Um, and when we do communicate, it tends to be way too complex. You know, in, in a funny way, you know, we don't like what the science, the cognitive science proves is what works to change people's <laughs> minds. Yeah. And what works is simple. We hate simplifying. And, you know, in the humanities and the sciences, we're rewarded for complexity, not simplicity. And we hate repeating ourselves. Um, and, you know, this is a problem with the news media, too, because if it isn't news, they don't report it again, yet people don't learn when they only hear a thing once. So yeah. we need to use the principles and science of modern communications if we want to prevail. Otherwise, the other guys will. Yeah. And I mean, like the perfect example, although it's not a New Zealand example, is build that wall. We'll make America great again, again and again and again. Or stop and again the steal. Yeah. And and now and now make America great again has now been turned into a descriptor that everyone uses, including the mainstream media, to describe a group of people. So not only Mega, has it been right. yeah yeah not only has it been used uh, uh, you know by Donald Trump to do that repetitive thing to as a simple message, it's now become a part of our parlance, our colloquial uh, way of describing a group of people, and everybody uses it. So That's it's right. certainly done its job. <laughs> and I was thinking we've got an election next year uh, here in New Zealand, and I was thinking. And listening to you through the last month or so and reading some of your stuff, it made me kind of think, oh, shit, even I've fallen into this trap. Because our now our right-wing party in New Zealand, the National Party, is nothing like Trumpian you know, America at the moment. But the, those the conservatives sitting on the right party, right? Sure. Um, they do it. They have the same lines they repeat again and again and again. And for the past few months, I've been joking 
about I'm looking forward to the election next year because what we're going to do is we're going to watch the debates live and we're going to have a bingo card. And every time they say those lines we're hearing them say all over again, we're going to tick it off and you know have a shot. But as I was thinking, I was thinking, hang on, but that means that they've done the job you're talking about because if they're repeating those lines enough for me to put them on a bingo card, then that's exactly what you're describing. So I've kind of fallen into the trap of being um, affected by it without even realizing. That's well, It does work on the subconscious. You know, as people are exposed to language, we form circuits in our brain. The linguists call them frames. They're actual circuits from repetitive exposure to language. Right. And successful communications tends to instantly activate one of those existing mental circuits or frames. For example, in, in the climate world, which is what I focus on now, if you say net zero, most people don't know what you mean. You're not activating an existing mental circuitry. If you say we have to stop pollution, everybody knows what you mean instantly. And no one likes pollution. So we have to learn to work within these simple concepts that activate the brain so that people can understand what we're talking about. And of course, I don't know what it's like in your country, but here we have another problem, which is, you know, the left has uh, moved into a certain kind of sectarianism. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, sectarianism in the dictionary is putting the interests and needs of your subgroup ahead of the interests of the whole. It's 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 a, a kind of self divisiveness. And so we have this so-called woke uh, language happening here at, that is based on a kind of sectarianism we call identitarianism. And again, identity is very important and people have the right to whatever identity they want. But that doesn't mean that focusing on the language of your identity is smart politics or is going to amass uh, mass support and majority support. And the only way, of course, that you can change things, the only way that you can help the oppressed and the vulnerable is to get power through mm -hmm. assembling majority support. So when people on the left now use terms like cis-normative and intersectional um, I can tell you that nobody knows what the hell they mean. So if they want to use terms like that within a subgroup, that's fine. But for your political communication, that's dead on arrival. So they're trying to, it's, it's the classic example I see in America is Latinx. You're like, like there are some groups trying to uh, further this, you know, non-binary language Latinx, but the Latino community has gone, fuck off. We're not using that well, because their whole, their the whole, they talk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because their whole, you know, the, the A or the O at the end is actually the, the, they have gendered language. That's right. And, but there is a subgroup saying that this is how everyone should talk. And the group that it actually impacts most of all, I've said, yeah, we're not, we're not doing that. We're not playing that game. And I was, it was one of the questions I had written down here for sure. you is, like you've said three things I want to go back to already, but why is gender, why is this the new thing, all-consuming for so many progressives? Well, look, you know, gender is a very important thing, and people have the right to be whatever gender they want to be. It's a very sacred and important right. I mean, anything else is oppression. I'm just saying that uh, if you make that your main political message, you're not going to win power. You know, in the 60s, we achieved a lot of lasting impact. And a lot of it was around issues of personal freedom 
and you know greatly reducing although certainly there's much more work to be done there's you know there's less sexism there's less racism we had a black president women are in the workforce none of that used to be true uh you know in the early 60s so you know marijuana is getting legalized personal freedom and the freedom to be who yourself is much greater it's not perfect by any means long way mm. to go but what we didn't succeed at is getting power we didn't build institutions the 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 corporate uh, world is more dominant in my country than ever before. They run everything. And so my point is, if we're going to make our main message gender and identity, we're not going to get power. And if we don't yeah. get power, we can't help protect people that are tra transvestites uh, or any kind of personal identity. So we have to distinguish between our own feelings and what is tactically and politically smart to achieve our goals. There was a, um, some research done, and I'm sorry, I don't have it to pull up, but from what you said, it's reminded me of it. Uh, there's a, an online news media show called Breaking Points, Crystal and Saga. Um, very, very good, very good uh, show. Um, and probably four or five months ago, I talked about it on my daily show, they did some research. Well, sorry, they had a guest on who was part of a union, so so left a left wing group, who was doing research amongst its members in purple states. So for mm -hmm. us New Zealanders, uh, a state which could either go Democrat or Republican, you know, right, blue right. Uh, blue red. So for so we can understand that, right? Of course. And and the 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 members of the unions, the workers, the the people who normally sit with the unions, were saying that the one reason that they wouldn't vote for the left was all the gendered language and those mixed yeah. messages around there, the identitarian politics. Now, I myself, I struggle. I don't like so much the labels of things. So this, people typically use the word woke for uh, basically for meaning I, I disagree with what you're saying, so you're woke. That's what right. I use that word. But I think identitarian politics is, you know, using your identities as the main reason for where your politics sits is a very clear and, and clever way to say it. And I just thought, as you were saying about if that becomes the main focus, you can't get power, which is reflected in this research. And if you can't get power, you can't make the changes that would help groups anyway. You can't lower the oppression and discrimination. But it does, lead, <laughs> so. it, does, it does lead me to the question about any means to an end. Does that therefore mean that, you know, any way we can get power for the greater good, we should do it? No, no, it's not about any way. I'm not saying we should lie or not be, uh, you know, focused on progressive values by any means. We should just be conscious of using language and imagery that is unifying to as many people as possible yeah. so that we can get majorities. You know, uh, we're up against a, a major enemy. Uh, the most, the biggest enemy humanity has ever actually had, you know, I mean, literally this sounds apocalyptic, but this is, I believe, accurate, descriptive. You know, there's about a hundred white men who are uh, willing to sacrifice the ability to have a livable climate and uh, working life support systems on our earth. They're willing to sacrifice that in order to make as much money as they can in the next 15 or 20 years. I'm talking about the oil, coal, and gas companies. Yeah. They're really ready to wipe out everything so they can make money for a short period of time. That's actually the drama that, and the epic that humans are facing now. Although it sounds a little crazy, it's really what's happening. That's what's happening.
So we have to unify as big a proportion of the population as we can to fight those people or they're going to succeed. So this is the issue. And of course, this applies to other aspects of progressive ideas too. I mean, there's massive income inequality. I don't know how bad it is in New Zealand, but it's ridiculous in my country. Mm -hmm. You know, it's basically uh, feudalism. You know, the, the, the wealth and income of the vast majority of people have been transferred to the top tenth of one percent of the population <laughs> and you know we have the baronial system again here so if we're going to do something about that we have to unify a lot of people against that common enemy you know i think this is all inevitably going to happen because as climate conditions worsen and as inequality worsens which we're on target for it to do eventually people are going to realize it's like war you have to unify to defeat the enemy so that's what i'm hoping we can achieve uh, as soon as possible i i i'm i love this idea and i'm and i'm gonna I, like i'm gonna i'm gonna scream this from the rooftops for the for the next 12 months um which is the idea of simplifying the message I mean, you're talking about climate change now and you've talked about, you know, uh, net zero. We talk about that a lot in New Zealand. Um, but the idea of pollution, I, I wrote a piece, I don't know, 2005, uh, which was, it was called Average Joe on Climate Change. And I'm like, if we just talk about pollution, it basically ticks, if not all, certainly most of those. And that in that instance, global warming challenges as well. Now, I was living in a, a New Zealand's biggest city at the time. I was riding a Vespa and I was like, I don't want to breathe in carbon monoxide coming out of cars, but I'm riding my Vespa. You know, let's look for a way to solve these problems. I want to be able to swim in clean waterways. Let's solve the pollution to do with this. And it's just something that I heard you saying. And I, like I said, the, being turned on to your stuff, I'm just like, this is, this, this is, I'm making you sound like my God figure. I don't want to do that. But it's like, this is it's the answer. It's like, isn't it? Well, it is common sense. And it makes me think again about simplifying the message. And that's why the left so often, it's not so much around the rest of the world as an American thing, but the left get called the kind of Ivy League elitists. And it's because of the language that they choose to use even though all of those guys on the right in America went to Ivy League colleges as well, you know, the majority of them, a lot of them did, but because they don't use the language that the left uses, and that's what we see here in New Zealand as well. I think you see that in the left around the world. Um, the right's able to compete. I mean, the I, I stand by the idea that I think most Western democracies, if you were to poll the populations on policy only, they'd all be left-wing countries. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I think it's obvious in America with a popular vote. You know, only much. once in the last 30 years has the right won the popular vote in the second term of George W. Bush. So it says to me that of all these countries, the the populations are majority left wing. How the fuck does the right win half the time? And well, it's because it it's because of the messaging. Yeah, they use true. propaganda. They're, they uh, otherwise known as brainwashing. Yeah, they've also built media institutions. Uh, for the express purpose of spreading intentional false propaganda to change people's sense of reality. And, you know, our common 
uh, enemy in, in the U.S. and Australia in that regard is Rupert Murdoch and his son Lachlan, who have created a false alternative brainwashed reality for 30% of Americans and a bunch of Australians. I hope he's not in your country. Uh, the, no, he's not. He doesn't have a toehold here at luck all. Luck you. <laughs> Thank you. Know, you. <laughs> the Brits wouldn't let him in either. Remember, the, he wanted to buy majority control of Sky News and... Thankfully, the, the British have a certain amount of modest media regulation, uh, and they deemed him not fit or proper to own the majority of Sky News, and that's an understatement. You know, this guy spreads falsehood on purpose, knowingly, for power and profit. And, you know, on climate change, he's the disinformer in chief. It's outrageous. And something's got to be done about it. You know, I mean, I, you know, I'm a freedom of speech devotee, but, you know, there, there, there's no absolutes in life. And, if, mm. you know, if somebody's taking down your civilization, then you kind of have to do something about it. You can't just say, oh, that's free speech. You know, <laughs> we do regulate some forms of speech in my country, even with the First Amendment. Fraud, you can't just claim fraud if you run a public company you'll go to jail yeah, yeah. you know that there there are some restrictions you know in, in europe i don't know about new zealand in most european countries you cannot buy political television advertising it is illegal is it illegal in new zealand we we our, our political um our, our election cycle is basically funded by the government so you you can you can donate to government, uh, but you, it's it's not like nowhere in the world has has you know packs like America does that basically, um, that basically sell sow seeds of dissent, so to speak, uh, no, illegally. Well, you can buy advertising to spread falsehoods that you know yeah, no. are false to mislead everybody. This just happened in our election here, where the Republicans, you know, made a crime into a much bigger issue than it actually is in on purpose to try to win. And and look, I'd also like to just stress something. I mean, I'm of the left, I'm from the left, but I have Republican friends and I work with Republicans on climate change. Right. Because we do need uh, some bipartisanship to solve the biggest issues that we face. You know, there are honest conservatives and 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 there are a lot of dishonest ones. So you can't paint them all with the same brush. But Murdoch and that the other guy, I think, is really responsible for a, a lot of the devolution in our information environment is Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. <laughs> he allows the worst distortion and lies and filth on Facebook. You know, we have this phenomenon in America, QAnon. Have you heard of this? The world's heard of QAnon, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's largely a function of Facebook allowing it to spread on Facebook so that all these Americans, you know, believe Democrats are eating babies and running child pornography rings. And it's disgusting, you know. And Zuckerberg has no incentive to clean this up because the law in the United States makes the internet platforms, the tech platforms, have zero liability for anything anyone posts on their platforms. And a bunch of us are trying to change this so they are liable when their algorithms boost false, disgusting, sleazy posts to millions of people, then they're being a publisher and they should be liable like every other publisher. And if they right. were, they'd change their algorithms and they'd hire all these people to clean up the platform. Again, the problem is not 
so much individuals post, let people post largely what they want. That is free speech. But there's do not spread the stuff that you know, whether it's, you know, climate falsehoods, vaccine falsehoods, racial falsehoods. When they boost that to millions of people, they should be liable. So it's not, I'm thinking about, because what I think is whatever the publication that's a physical newspaper, those sort of rules should apply to a publication that's a digital thing. They're so liable. What, you, what you're saying is someone writes an op-ed or, a, or a, a letter to the editor that features on page 79 and it's their opinion is one thing, but should the newspaper then put it on the front page with a big headline and then boost it to the world, that's that's a different that's area right. of responsibility to that newspaper. And so they it should even be the pick same. what letter to publish too, you know. Yeah. And, and, and I'm for, you know, of course, a diversity of viewpoints. Nobody has a monopoly on the truth. No humans can see reality all by themselves. Conservatives aren't wrong about everything. Dialogue is important. But intentional knowing falsehood, that's a different thing. And that has to be snuffed out and reduced. Or, you know, you, you kind of have a choice. You, you can have a democracy um, or you can have a free-for-all of, you know, intentional falsehood all over social media, but you can't have both because yeah. democracy requires an educated population. You know, a pollster I know in America says what used to happen is he would take a poll and Americans would have different opinions about the same facts. Now everybody has their own facts. So you cannot yeah. <laughs> have a democracy with that kind of information pollution. Hey, um, something else about the media as well. I'm going to bring up an example from here in New Zealand. You're not going to obviously know the story, but I'll, I'll give you context. As you're talking about media bias, you were talking about you know, the Rupert Murdoch's of this world who are actively seeking or sowing, I should say, disinformation. Mark Zuckerberg, who is promoting and social media is promoting, you know, dis and misinformation. What about one step down from that? So here's an example. This is a, a television station in New Zealand called TV3. They run a show called News Hub. Um, they did some research with a reputable uh, research company in New Zealand, and they did a word cloud on our political leaders, right? So this is Jacinda Ardern, our prime minister's word cloud. And they just, they they um, asked people the words that made them think about these political leaders. Now you can see from looking at this word cloud that the word caring and good are the, are the two biggest things. The next three biggest would probably be unsure, strong, and kind. Mm -hmm. The next three biggest would probably be great, empathetic, capable, mm -hmm. useless in there as well. Mm -hmm. Now the news outlet chose to lead that story by using the words deceitful, and dictator as mm. some of the words that were in the word cloud. Now, if you look mm. over here, I've circled them. You probably can't even see them. I see them. Okay. So one of those is deceitful. Can I zoom in a bit? Oh, there we go. One of those is deceitful. Right. One of those is dictator. So the headline of the story used the phrase deceitful and dictator as some of the words that were on their word cloud and ignored the caring and the good. Now they're not a they're not a well arguably they're not a right wing media outlet, and I guess what I'm wondering is the media bias that also are driven by clicks, yes, as opposed to an ideology of putting a, a a political party down. How does that fit into this conversation? Yeah, no, it's a good point. That, you know, the sensationalism sells, and yeah. you know the 
one of the challenges we have is that these uh, all the digital platforms want to keep your attention. They want to keep your eyeballs on the platform. And, and that goes for publishers who are using digital platforms. So the, it is just a fact that the loudest, most screaming, most sensational, usually most uh, uh, controversial and negative is what keeps you coming back. That's what appeals to the reptilian part of our brain. <laughs> yeah. And so it's a downward spiral. And so, you know, there are people looking at how to redesign the business models and the technology of these platforms to emphasize and reinforce positive aspects. And it's a very deep issue. And, you know, there's a guy named Tristan Harris at a, an American NGO called the Center for Humane Technology who would be a very interesting guest for you. Mm. And you may have seen him if you watch the Netflix film, The Social Dilemma. Oh, yeah. Tristan is the one of the main characters in that film. And he's a former Google engineer. And he's writing a book right now. And they're looking at how to redesign these platforms so that they help humans evolve rather than devolve. Because, yeah. you know, the technology can be used for good. And there are different uh, business models that can help enable that, but it's going to require a decision that we have to govern these platforms. Uh, we can't just leave them to, you know, rapacious pri private interests purely any more than we would leave an electric utility alone to a, 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 a private interest without any regulation whatsoever. Do you think the two examples we just talked about, the algorithms and the example I just gave, is one better or worse, or are they the same? Because in one of those, there's an algorithm that's written that basically just then says, boost, boost, boost. It boosts things that are are, are um, popular. And what seems to be popular is blood on the floor. So it boosts things that are blood on the floor. Whereas in the example I just gave from TV3, an individual had to make a conscious decision, an editorial decision to go, let's put deceitful and dictator up there. Yeah. Well, is, there any, the is there any different? The algorithms are, are the bigger problem because they have a much bigger impact. I'll give you an example. So, uh, you know, one of the worst offenders is YouTube. And of course, YouTube has a recommendation engine like Netflix and other platforms. Yeah. So as soon as the YouTube algorithm recommendation engine gets a whiff that you may have conservative leanings, they're going to feed you all this climate change disinformation. Right. Carbon dioxide is good for you. The earth hasn't warmed. It's not a problem. They'll take you to Bjorn Lumberg and all these other deceitful people. And so all of a sudden, you're now in a bubble of disinformation served to you by YouTube's algorithms. This is how QAnon spread. Um, you know, this is how you know Obama's a Muslim and wasn't born in the United States. This is all how this stuff spreads. YouTube and Facebook and, to a lesser extent, Twitter, uh, you know, spread these things to large, large audiences because it it helps them retain their attention on the platform. So this needs to be changed. This is the by far the bigger problem because everybody's on their phone all the time yeah. looking at what the algorithms are sending them. So if the algorithms are sending you down a rabbit hole of falsehood, that's a huge problem.
because you know you can't expect the public to all have the time and the skills to determine what's true and what isn't. That's why we have historically had arbiters and editors in media to help distinguish this for people. That's gone. So we need to restore some of it, in my opinion. With the freedoms that the American, uh, I guess, politicals have to say whatever they want, I've always been confused as to why you don't see more defamation cases between politicians. How come in America someone's allowed to say an, an overt lie to damage someone's reputation, to cause them to not get elected, and there's never a legal repercussion for that in a country that is known for being so freaking litigious? Yeah. So it's because of a landmark U.S. Supreme Court decision called New York Times versus Sullivan that raised the standard for when you can bring a defamation suit to a very, very difficult to achieve standard. And they did that to protect uh, so-called public figures from frivolous uh, claims and and intimidation of speech. Actually, I would say the motivation was largely a good motivation, but they didn't anticipate how far people would take this. So that in order to sue a so-called public figure, a person in the public eye, you have to prove actual malice that the uh, the distortions that you are accusing them of uttering were purposely uttered or written knowingly, maliciously to hurt you. It's a very high standard. So there's few of those uh, suits filed. However, there are a couple of very important ones underway that are making progress. There is a lawsuit against Fox News for defamation Um that really could bring Fox News down. We're all hoping it does. Is that uh, the one? Is that the one by from the, the voting um, machine company? Yeah, the voting machine company. Where because yeah. they can prove that the Fox anchors knew and were repeatedly told wow. that what they were saying was false, but they kept saying it to cast doubt on the election. So, you know, the, the courts are letting this proceed because they're they they've shown that they can meet the standard of proving actual malice. Mm-hmm. It's a high standard, and there's a couple of other lawsuits like that. But yes, it is an irony. We're a very litigious society, but we, um, you know, I think there's a misunderstanding really of the First Amendment that free speech applies to any and all kinds of speech, no matter the circumstances, you know, the, the, and, and that's not how the founders intended it. You know, it says the, the, the notion of the first amendment was to protect the right of people to criticize the government, which of course is sacrosanct. People have to have the right to criticize the government all the time without any restrictions, but to go and claim that, uh, you know, uh, uh, there's no global warming or, uh, you know, uh, Democrats have uh, uh, are eating babies <laughs> with no repercussion. <laughs> That's a different thing. Yeah. So it's a tough thing for people because there's an absolutist view of this. And, you know, and, and, you know, I talk about this in my book, frankly, there's in Western cultures, there's too much of an absolutist black and white view of kind of everything uh, that, you know, you're either it's also black and white. You know, the, the best example I like to cite is, you know, conservatives are allegedly for free markets, right? And progressives are associated with regulated markets. And it's presented as a binary choice. 
Are mm -hmm. you for freedom or are you for regulation? Well, that's just nonsense. The issue isn't or there is what is the best synthesis and combination of both. What is the balance point at different points in economic circumstance and history? Because, of course, if you have no regulation, people will steal. That's human nature. And, <laughs> and, and if you have too much, then you uh, repress innovation and creativity like happened in the Soviet Union, and that's a disaster. So yeah. it's rarely a binary choice. So, you know, back to free the First Amendment and free speech, there are exceptions already. If you run a public company, you can't uh, claim false earnings figures, you'll go to jail. That's a restriction on free speech. And you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. And there are certain kinds of hate speech that are illegal and should be. And, you know, when people say, well, who's going to decide and the slippery slope? And, and, you know, my answer to that is all human systems are imperfect. Don't make perfection the yardstick because you'll never achieve it. You have yeah. to do the best you can and keep evolving. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole... Um are you for freedom or for regulation? I hear that. And I think you're, I think you're right. And I speak to that a lot when I'm talking to specifically right-wing contributors to this or politicians or commentators out of America as well, who always talk about big government versus small government. And what I say to them always is, I, I don't think, I think you've got the argument wrong. Not, no one wants to, to care about big government or small government. We want to care about better government. We want better government. And sometimes, and I use the example of the, you know the um, the oil spill and in, in the uh, down in, Me in the Mexican Sea there, Sea of Mexico, where apparently there was one inspector for all the oil rigs. That was an example right. where bigger government probably would have been better. Yeah, notice words, they don't call inspectors. for smaller government when it comes to the defense budget. Yeah, or things like <laughs> or, or things or like prisons. Roe versus, they or, want or Roe, bigger government when it comes to prisons. Yeah, or Roe versus Wade. They want to completely get into people's individual choices yeah. there, and they want to be as big as possible. So I always think about what's better. Like when you get the binary of big versus small or freedom versus regulation, it's like, actually, what's good? I mean, if we didn't have regulation, you know, you'd have shonky builders building bad houses that would fall over and kill people. Exactly. It, it's like saying you shouldn't have courts. You shouldn't have rules in sports. It's it's a ridiculous point of view. At the same time, conservatives are right that excessive regulation and bureaucracy are problems, and mm -hmm. we should be cognizant of that. You know, they're not wrong about everything either, and we're no, not, not right about everything. <laughs> uh, no, no, they're not. But the thing that frustrates me and and my sort of commentary is we're not. And that's a good example you used about bureaucracy. Like we're, we're constantly being told by our conservative parties, you know, about too much bureaucracy, too much bureaucracy. And then they announce policies that would add a layer of bureaucracy. I'm like, well, right. hang on. So what uh -huh. you're actually saying is when it's their bureaucracy, it's no good, but when it's your bureaucracy, that's the correct answer. Yeah, so it's so true. frustrating. Yeah. It's all about power. Let me ask you something. So yeah. in the UK, the conservative party agrees that global warming is a threat to civilization and the economy what about yep. in new zealand yeah i mean now the leader of the opposition uh which is our national party uh, christopher luxon he used to be the um ceo of Air new zealand apparently that's a prerequisite to be the leader of the national party because we've had two of them now um and you know we talk about this um forgive me i'm i'm because i don't do labels i'm not up with all the, the lingo myself but the net zero emissions by 20 whatever it is 50 and uh -huh. there was a conversation just the other day 
with he says we're on board for that we just think they're doing it the wrong way so i think that they are um shall we say to coin the phrase not as progressive as our our, our left political parties to how to make a difference Mm. but they're not deniers i mean there's probably deniers there's probably deniers amongst their ranks but as a party and as a leader they're not deniers well it's a huge problem in in my country and of course in australia and and it has similar sources one of course is the murdoch uh, disinformation channels Uh, i mean look the wall street journal you know the the largest newspaper the certainly the most influential newspaper in america in the business world its official editorial position is still to deny that climate change is a problem wow it's unbelievable right in the modern world but of course the other part of this issue is corruption so the the oil coal and gas companies are the richest and most powerful industries on earth and that have ever existed on earth and they corrupt politicians and they are the primary funding base of the republican party in the united states so getting bipartisan action on this ultimate issue is very difficult often because the money is talking and you know, the, I don't have to tell you about the influence of the coal companies uh, in Australia, although it, you know, it's gone the other way somewhat recently with the last election. But you know, this is why you have to alert and arouse and communicate to the public because that's the only check and balance we have on that kind of corruption. We're never going to match them financially. But you know, an, an, an aroused mass movement against the pollution of the fossil fuel companies, both their actual pollution and their corruption of the political process, that's the solution that we need. And so that's why I focus a lot in my book on, you know, the chapter is called Climate Change, a Communications Failure, because that's what it is. You know, I'll give you an example. In the United States, only 20% of the public knows that all the climate scientists agree that humans are heating the earth. Most Americans think there's still enormous scientific disagreement about that when there's none. There's Mm. none, and there hasn't Mm. been for years. So why do people think that? Well, the bulk of the reason is that was the propaganda strategy of the fossil fuel companies to spread doubt about whether scientists agreed. And they learned that from the experience of the tobacco companies, where the tobacco (laughs) companies would put out communications saying, doctors don't agree that cigarettes cause cancer, which was a lie. Doctors did agree. And they knew that spreading that kind of doubt and confusion would slow down the advent of regulation on tobacco. And it slowed it down for decades. So the same thing now with climate change. Scientists don't agree humans are changing the earth. That's a big lie. On the other hand, I don't just blame the fossil fuel companies, even though they're the main progenitor of this. I also blame the NGOs and the scientists and the government, because we've never made a point of effectively communicating that there is scientific unity on this to the public at any scale. We've never had a campaign to undo the manipulation that the fossil fuel industry did. So what are we waiting for? We need to do this because, of course, when people understand that all the scientists agree this is perilous for us, then people want to do something. The confusion confuses them. 
Yeah. And look, and I, I've got a couple of other quick questions here. Then I want to circle back to this part of the conversation because what you're now talking about is your expertise in PR and messaging. And I definitely want to go there, um, which which is what we'll do in a sec. But I just was thinking as you were talking about all the money from the fossil fuel and the coal companies, I, I, there was a stand up routine, I think, by Chris Rock, who was talking about the difference between wealth and rich. And he was talking about all the people who are rich and he was talking about Shaquille O'Neal, the basketball player. And he's like, Shaquille O'Neal is rich. The person who signs Shaquille's check, they're wealthy. Right. And I feel like that the right in America have sowed this narrative that, you know, look at the left. They've got all the Hollywood elites on board and da, 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 da. But it's the people who sign those Hollywood elites checks who are running the, the companies at the top who are the ones with all the money. It's the, the fossil fuel companies with the money signing the checks of the profile people That's and right. they just are, are all if not all certainly most ones that are supporting the right so the wealth is on the right there may be riches on the left but the wealth is on the right and i think right. that's what you see that's certainly true and you know you've seen that with you know look at the transformation of elon musk which you know yeah. is very sad to me someone who has done a lot for our planet a lot and should be applauded for it and seems to be uh, devolving you know into uh you know basically a, a right winger and and i don't know how he reconciles that with his concern about the climate which he dedicated so much of his career to addressing mm. by electrifying transportation these people he's now associating with and promoting on twitter they would end life on planet earth with fossil fuel <laughs> pollution what is with elon come back elon please <laughs> hey before we move into looking at the book for a, for a bit i just want to talk to you about free speech because you brought it up a couple of times um it's so much not a left versus right conversation because the political compass talks about authoritarian and libertarian as well and i feel that on the left which for a long time if you think about the hippies in the 60s and stuff was the bastion of free speech and free expression and all that but if you go to the left and go up onto the authoritarian side that seems to be one of the areas at the moment that is people who want to most hinder free speech out of everybody um in my experience at least and it seems that um, the closer you get to libertarianism on the left or the right, the more you seem to be for free speech. But it feels to me that those on the right, so forget the authoritarian left, but those are more on the libertarian left. They're looking for these freedoms around speech, in my opinion, to be able to have authentic, genuine, real conversations and not be scared about you know, what they're saying in case they step right. on some toes of the sensitive. Right. Whereas, the, whereas those on the right seem to want to have free speech so they can use the n-word and the f-word and go well they're just words no one matters <laughs> that's how it kind of feels to me can you speak yeah, yeah. to that no i think i think there's a lot of truth to that um you know there's intimidation going on on the left people are afraid to speak out against all this craziness that is going on there's so much intolerance it's really antithetical to the spirit of the of creativity and personal freedom of the 60s yeah. you know it's a kind of mccarthyism if you know what i'm referring to the yep. senator mccarthy going after people for their thoughts and their beliefs it's very intolerant and and you know and and it uh it helps the right when the left is seen as intolerant in that way um so it's a big problem and people within a lot of the progressive organizations who know better are afraid to speak out because they do get canceled and their careers do get ruined and mobs do come after them online so it's not a good period for that that's certainly true you know on the on the right 
you know, I don't think that there's an intentional desire to hurt people, but um, people on the right in, in America, you know, they, they really don't like the idea of, for example, kids being taught the history of racism in America. Mm. You know, they want it to be all rah, rah, America is only great. Well, America yeah. isn't only great and hasn't only been great, although it has many great aspects. So, you know, they feel threatened by that. And that, of course, is tied into the fact that demographically white European people in the United States are going to become the minority. And they're pretty freaked out about that. Um, but, you know, people better get used to it. It's what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the waves coming towards you. You can't stop the water. It's it's coming. Deal with it. Hey, let me, this is, I've got, a, a, I ask this question when I often talk to right-wing commentators out of America, and I, I've done that a fair bit. I always say to them, is America the greatest country in the world? And they go, yes. <laughs> and I go, I go, what's your metric for that? And, <laughs> and then they tend to stumble. How would you respond to that? Is America the greatest country in the world? If you think it is, then what's well, your metric for like that? Like I said, there's no black and white. There's no binary choices. It is and it isn't. The um, <laughs> so that sounds I, like a maybe. <laughs> well, I would say you know, I'm very struck when I go to Europe, which I do a lot. My wife is European, uh, and right. and even to Canada. In general, I would say people are happier, um, and and I believe that is partly because they have health insurance, they have mm -hmm. pensions, they tend to have living wages, or or more so. Uh, you know, they're they're less feeling that they're all on their own, every man for himself in a jungle like it is in America. It's worse than mm -hmm. ever now here. Uh, so, you know, in that regard, in terms of social democracy and meeting people's basic needs, I think uh, America is by far not the greatest country in the world. And by, uh, you know, anxiety measures and stress and uh, standard of living and you know, broadly dispersed as opposed to, you know, uh, looking at averages, um, we're behind, you know, people in France have a much better quality of life than they do in much of the United States. Uh, and that's, you know, heretical because, you know, these Republicans are like, well, you wouldn't want to be like France. And I'm like, oh, my God, why not? <laughs> you know, you, you, you'd have lovely villages and great wine and you have health insurance and you don't have to pay for it. I mean, Jesus doesn't sound so bad. And the food's not bad either. But <laughs> but in other ways, you know, it is true. The United States has a lot of innovation. There's a lot of creativity here um you know the rewards for that are are strong that's part of why i think the rewards are out of proportion now they used to be much more taxed than they are now you know people forget when ronald reagan came into office in 1981 the the top tax rate on americans for federal taxes was in it was 70 something percent and he lowered it to 35 he cut it in half and that's when all this wealth accumulation started in our country. And that's when the lack of investment in infrastructure and education and our common future started falling apart, along with the bridges and the roads. So, you know, that ideology of what Bernie Sanders calls the billionaire class, they won. And that won't last forever. So mm. I'm hoping to see it switch back soon. 
Yeah. No, that's really interesting. Hey, let's um, let's have a look at a couple of uh, this is from the I guess you'd call this a it's a strange thing to say, but a trailer for your book. Yes, if it's that a is book such trailer, a thing. like for a movie. Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. that's a trailer for your book. It's, yeah, uh-huh. it's, it's, it's a new it's thing. Great. Yeah, it's great though. Let's um, let's uh, show people a couple of little clips from this. Oh, Not great, the whole sure. thing. And then um, let's talk about your book because uh, I'm already trying to figure out how to connect you with the left wing politicians in New Zealand. Um, because it's looking like a long, strong, uh, long, hard struggle uphill for the next 12 months for them. They, I think they need to simplify some messaging and hear a bit about what you've got to say. Sure. So let's have a look at the first, the first 60 seconds of this um, and have a look a bit about who you are and what your book's about. Sure. I'm an activist first and foremost, but, but I've focused on using communications to advance activism because if we don't communicate, we won't change the world. Great music, by the way. Spot on. As we all know, we're in this age of disinformation now. There's falsehood everywhere. Disinformation is the nature of the age. My message is we have to practice modern communication techniques to cut through all the fog and all the falsehood and all the distortion, or we're not going to succeed. We have this kind of uh, quaint idea that really good ideas kind of magically sell themselves. And we don't like selling. That's manipulative. That's dirty. Well, when you're selling the truth, it's not dirty. It's actually necessary. My book and my life and my career have been about activist communications, communications for social change, communications for the greater good. Amazing, amazing, amazing. And um, photos are amazing. I mean, some of those photos are just outstanding. I'm going to bring up one off your um, off your instagram surely to show people you in the 1960s fighting for um legalized marijuana because it's one of the greatest photos i've ever seen in my life um it sounds like though you also were someone who did you started off being an activist who was walking the streets fighting the fight not just communicating and you've learned the communicating along the way and now that's what you do you do you think it's the best form of activism now or is it just another form that you're now doing and you needed to do those other things first, like the walking the streets and being protests to get to this point? Well, actually, I started out as a photojournalist covering the left and taking pictures of riots and demonstration and anti-war protests and tear gas and rock stars in the 60s. Um, And I've always been an activist. I've just used different forms of communications, starting with photography and then morphing into public relations and then advertising to do it. It's not the only form of activism, of course. You know, grassroots organizing is essential. And these things work best together when you have good communications and you also have a good so-called ground war. You have to do both. And people have to run for public office. That's part of activism too. So I wouldn't say there's only one form of this. But what they all have in common is that if you if you use simple language that most people understand, that's unifying, that activates them, that they support, then you're going to be much more effective. And and that's something the right is right now better at than we are. And mm-hmm. that didn't used to be the case. And I'm hoping it's going to reverse again. Yeah. And that, that, that language, that unifying language, again, what I hear you saying, and it seems to be what we've talked about already, is that uh, the the right does it well, the left does it poorly. 
Um, there's another part of the clip that I want people to hear and see as well. It's talking about the priority to communicate. So let's have a listen to this 30 seconds. You have to make a priority of communicating to the public in ways that work. Your messages have to be simple and you have to repeat them and repeat them and repeat them till you're more than sick to death of what you're saying. Only then has anyone heard you. And if you're invisible, you're not powerful. Visibility is power. Communications is power. Because we're in a perception-dominated era. Perception is reality. And this is why I started Fenton Communications, because I thought there should be a PR firm that didn't lie and actually worked for the people. So there you go. Telling the truth, repeating simple messages is the way forward, yeah? Yeah, it's always been the way forward. It's what the, the great leaders of social movements have always done. You know, and, and another part of it, of course, is that the social movements that succeed are the ones that seize and hold the moral high ground. It, all these battles are moral battles. And when the public perceives it that way, that's when you win. Yeah, so it's it's start with the the moral, the start, speak to the heart. That's where you start, isn't it? I think we've got on your front page here, you've got your steps, haven't you? And one of the things is create a simple message everyone can understand. Speak to the heart first, the mind second. So speaking to the heart, let's, I mean, I know that one of your big areas, if not the biggest area, is climate change at the moment. But, I mean, not that you're going to get re through to those right-wing Republican senators, but, you know, speaking to the heart would be, what, what are your grandchildren going to That's live right. in? You know, that's and that's the, the heart first. Yeah. Uh, you know, humans are emotional creatures. Have you noticed? Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's a great thing, actually. Uh, you, you know, except when uh, you know, people like Donald Trump come along to manipulate those emotions for, you know, personal profit and power, which we we'll always have to be on guard against. But, you know, touching people's emotions and hearts for a better world that's our job yeah here's this photo i wanted to share one of the greatest photos i've ever seen in my life <laughs> yeah i was 19 years old uh when that picture was taken in 1971 i was working to get a guy out of prison who had been sentenced to 10 years for two joints of cannabis wow and uh, john lennon and yoko ono and stevie wonder came and played a benefit concert uh, to get him out of prison and we got him out yeah, the, your resume of people you've worked with and worked around and met. Um, I mean, I heard Fidel Castro, obviously Nelson Mandela, Bruce Springsteen, all these names, Yoko Ono, John Lennon. It's just your your life. I mean, this is, what about a memoir? Is that coming? Because you well, must have some fascinating part, stories. The book is part memoir. I, I don't think it's available in New Zealand. I mean, maybe Amazon will send it there. I just don't know. But you know, hopefully in the future, it'll be published there. It is a synthesis of a memoir and a guide for activists and how to do these things based on lessons from my life. But it is part memoir. Um, yeah, it sure is. We have a, a website in New Zealand called Mighty Ape. Uh, and I saw it in the Google search that was there. I oh, went great. to the link and couldn't find it. But what I have found, because I, I want to make sure people know, is you can absolutely get it in New Zealand from the book depository. Oh, great. Now, the book, the, the book depository. I don't know what it retails for in America, but this is about 40 US dollars. Yeah, so it's you 35 can, you, here. Well, look, that, this is delivered to New Zealand for 64 New Zealand dollars, which oh, is that's about. Great. 
Yeah, which is about fifty-five American dollars anyway. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, sorry, which is about uh, forty American dollars. So that's not far off retail, including international delivery. And I've even done this, David. Check this out. If people are interested in New Zealand and the activist media handbook lessons from fifty years as a progressive agitator, uh, the book uh, the book depository also says if you order it by seventh of December. You should be able to get it for Christmas. There you go. There's oh, uh, the delivery date. So 7th of December is what in the book depository says. Order it by then. You should be able to get it for Christmas. So that's in there as well. Hey, before we wrap up, David, and because you are a PR specialist and a communication specialist, I wanted to ask you very quickly about the uh, the disinform. Sorry, not the disinformation. The, oh, see, this is my dyslexia when it kicks in. The dissemination is the word I'm looking for of information today uh, with guys like Joe Rogan and that dominating so much of the um, informa- information space. Uh, but aren't necessarily held accountable to anything they say. Right. What are your thoughts on how information is disseminated en masse to the public today? Well, you know, it's it's mostly on social media today. And, uh, you know, I think that the left can be much more systematic and conscious of making sure its messages are disseminated. You know, uh, again, the right, which tends to go to business school and study marketing science, they know that it's not enough to have a message. You have to make sure that that message actually reaches people Mm -hmm. and reaches them repetitively. And on the left, we often have what I, I guess, a little sarcastically referred to as the telepathic theory of communications, which is, you know, we know something and by some incredible magic, everybody finds out about it. So in today's fractured, splintered media environment, it's more work to make sure that your messages reach your target audiences. And you have to spend some money to do it effectively in most cases. Mm-hmm. So it is a different landscape than when I started out. But you can do it. And, uh, and we must because, you know, it's, it's only by reaching people effectively that we're going to have movements to a- accomplish our objectives. Yeah. And it's also then you're fighting uphill those algorithms we were talking about earlier as well. I was talking with my co-host of the uh, Daily News Show, Chewy, last night. And we've both noticed in our Twitter feeds, all of a sudden, there's a there's a different vibe to what's showing up in our timeline yeah. versus what there was six months ago. And we're, w- without actually knowledge yet, we're just wondering if those algorithms are starting to slightly change thanks to Mr. Elon Musk. is changing the platform. There's no mm. question about it. And he's allowing people back on that were banned, you know, largely for good reasons. Uh, so, you know, and he seems to be intentionally cultivating the American right, which again, I I think is very ironic because, you know, he knows and cares about climate change and he's now consorting with the people who are going to cause more of it. But, you know, this is a work in progress. We don't know where it's going to, how it's going to end up. Yeah. And probably also for an individual, you got to ask what's your driving number one factor. And obviously for Elon, it's not climate. It's not the climate. And that might be one of his concerns, but Obviously, it's not his primary driver because if it was, he, you wouldn't be able to work with those people. Well, it used to be. Yeah. That's, you know, you, you know, remember, I mean, I'm, I think what's happening with Elon right now is very sad, but people forget, you know, Elon uh, put his patents for electric car manufacturing in the public domain. He gave them away intentionally so that the other automobile companies could move to electric non-polluting cars. That was a fantastic thing he did. And most people wouldn't do that. So he's a complicated figure, 
But you know, uh, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. You've heard that before, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think, I hope it's not permanent, but for the moment, I think uh, power corrupts and $300 billion seems to uh, really corrupt you and, uh, you know, and corrupt your rational mind. Hopefully it's temporary. David, our uh, current left-leaning, left-wing uh, government has got a, a battle uphill for the next 12 months to get re-elected. Um, should you be advising them, uh, if this was a 60-second masterclass with David Fenton on uh, left-wing messaging, what would you be telling them about how to get their message across to the public in the next Oh, I months? don't know nearly enough about your country to say. What about say. what about just the themes around what they should do, what the, the, the practice as opposed to the actual messages? Well, again, it's all about simple messages, repeated, 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 repeated. And, you know, I, I suspect they don't like that either, but that's what works. So we better do it. We need to do it ethically, truthfully, simplifying can uh, distill the truth. You have to be careful. Uh, but, you know, that's how the brain works. That's how public opinion changes. That's uh, the nature of the reality we face. The book is The Activist's Media Handbook, Le uh, Lessons from 50 Years as a Progressive Agitator. If you want to find out more about David, davidfentonactivist.com. Lovely photo there with Nelson Mandela. Yeah, the list of people you've met and got to know and worked with David is, is amazing. Hey, thank you so much for giving us some time today. Thank I've, you very en much. I've enjoyed this immensely. Um, I hope that people heed and listen to your words of uh, repetition and simplicity. That's what I'm taking away from this. Good. And um, I also wonder, to be honest with you, I wonder how that not only helps with a activist's uh, position, but also in other areas of life, in business, in you know, things you're trying to build. And that that is a, a similar theme, I think, that could come through to help all sorts of people get their their messages across to build what they're trying to build. It's a first principle of communications. All right. Well, I hope to come to New Zealand and meet you in person. Be fantastic. Thanks for joining right. us today, Thank David. Thank you for having me. So long.